Hey, uh, kind of unusual show today here on Stoner. Usually I talk to creative people about their on-again, off-again relationships with marijuana. Sometimes I talk to people who work in the marijuana industry. Occasionally, as with today, uh, we delve a little bit deeper into psychedelic history. So I found this book, it's called Altered States, the Library of Julio, or rather Julio, Santo Domingo. Uh, Julio Santo Domingo was a collector and the world's uh, foremost collector of drug paraphernalia, items from psychedelic history, uh, more than 50,000 items. Uh, my guest this week, Peter Watts, curated uh, a uh, exhibition and a book about this collection. I was fascinated by it. I think you will be too. You can send me an email, hi at stoner.co. Here's the show. Welcome, Peter Watts. Hi there, hi. So uh, you are the editor, uh, the uh, anthologizer of uh, this new book, Altered States, the library of Julio Santo Domingo. Am I pronouncing his name correctly? Yep, that's right, yep. Maybe starting from the start, what, like, how did you get involved with this project? So... Um... Uh, it's quite a long story. I'll give you the shorter version. <laughs> Fair um, enough. I'm a journalist. I'm a journalist. Um, I'm kind of into, I was always interested in maybe the counterculture. I worked for a magazine called Time Out in London, which um, kind of sprang from the sort of 60s uh, free press revolution. Um, my publisher there told me I needed to meet this guy called Carl Williams, who was a book dealer. Um, at a very uh, posh bookshop in Mayfair. And um, I met Carl, we got on, and I discovered that Carl had worked for this man called Julio Santo Domingo in Geneva. And um, at some point later on, when they were looking for a writer, he suggested me to the family to sort of put together a book about the Santo Domingo collection. Often in doing this show, I've had trouble uh, defining exactly what the contours of psychedelia or the counterculture are. And this book kind of mm. speaks to uh, what a sprawling project documenting that is. Yeah, I, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. So, I mean, so I'll tell you a little bit about the collection and, yeah. and, um, and, and about that. What was the first time you actually laid eyes on the collection? Well, so Carla told me about this guy who collected books about drugs, and um, that was kind of all I knew. Um, and then when I was invited to Geneva to the warehouse to see it by the family, um, you know, I, I thought I would, I'd be going to someone's house and seeing like a room full of like old books. But it was this massive warehouse just filled with, um, you know, there were, there were lots of books, there were newspapers, there were bongs. There were sacks of weed. There were, uh, you know, there were, there were thousands and thousands of um, paintings and posters. And it covered everything from black magic to, you know, there's Alistair Crowley's wand. There was Mick Jagger's T-shirt. There was like an Andy Warhol doll. And it was just this incredibly uh, diverse, quite witty and very erudite collection based on a general theme of altered states. But using that as a springboard to go into all sorts of areas. And um, when he was collecting this stuff, was he thinking about it being displayed or having an enduring life as a library, or was this like purely a private pursuit for him? Yeah, this is an interesting one. Um, 
It depends who you spoke to, really. So, so, so quickly, I mean, Julio himself died in, uh, I think, 2009. Um, you know, and, and I, th- I think for him, he really enjoyed the, um, the act of collecting. You know, he enjoyed acquisition. He enjoyed buying new things. Um, he was a hoarder. And that's what he got his kicks from. And he did talk about you know, how he was going to create this space um, in which researchers could come and, 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 and explore do research into the counterculture, into altered states, into into the chemicals of drugs, into the lifestyle of drugs, into the policing of drugs, into almost any aspect of, of drug culture. You know, this this was very very far from uh, from ever happening um, at the point of his death, and whether he ever really had the uh, had had what it took to, to move to that level is a moot point. <laughs> sure. And what, like, what led him to start collecting this stuff? What, what was his entry point for for starting this collection? I mean, on, on a very sort of basic level, I think he was, um, you know, he was interested in, in rebellion generally. Um, he was interested in the concepts of altered states. He was a big fan of the Rolling Stones, which kind of led him to certain areas of kind of drug culture and and counterculture and political rebellion in the sixties. Um, but kind of more directly, really, I think he was. He and his wife, um, they, 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 were, they, were quite, they were they were a wealthy couple and they collected books about travel. And that's where he would go in to buy at mags and various bookshops, you know, around London and Paris and New York. He'd buy books about travel. And I don't think that was really sort of scratching his itch. And at some point, you know, he just decided actually there was another form of travel he was interested in. And that was the kind of, you know, the, 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 the travel of the subconscious, you know, the, the, the travel of the, of the inner mind. And he kind of sprang from collecting books about travel to to collecting books about drugs. I assume that um, this wasn't an easy pursuit. I mean, it's not like uh, collecting coins or stamps where there's an established uh, dealer, a collector system and books about it. Like some of these items that I'm seeing, I'm looking at uh, right now, The Hashish Eater by Fitzhugh Hudlow, a, a book from the 1800s about uh, hashish eating. Mm. How, like, how did he find out what of this stuff existed and then track it down? Um, I mean, I, I saw these notebooks of his where he'd kind of obviously, you know, got a book about opium, say, and then gone through the bibliography and written down every single book and then, you know, they were on his list that he was going to acquire them. You know, he yeah. was quite methodical in, in his pursuit. You know, he had lots of contacts with book dealers um, who would kind of, you know, basically that, you know, they would feed him his supply. They would come up to him and say, we've got this, we've got that. Do you want it? Do you want it? And, and so people would, would get to him that way. Um, you know, he would, he would go to bookshops and he'd just walk in and his first question would always be, do you have any books about drugs? Um he would, um, and then he used eBay. You know, he would use eBay to collect novelty items. You know, in a way that was quite different to most people who were collecting at this level. You know, he was spending vast sums of money every year, but he would also, you know, would buy like you know a two, you know, a, a two-pound novelty item or something. So he was collecting at all levels, and because also he had such a kind of um, broad concept of what was applicable. I, I found that when I was when I was researching this book and I'd be reading a book, you know, unrelated to the subject, I suddenly discovered there was a paragraph about I don't know speed in it, and and you know, and I would think, well, that would go in the library. And it's funny that when you when your mind is attuned to it, you suddenly see connections everywhere. Right. And it's almost like it's such a broad concept of what of, of the subject that almost anything could be fitted into it if he wanted to fit it into it. Yeah, I noticed that. Like, I, I, you know, like there's a real like high low element to his collection where you'll see 
what you know are a- antique books, but then like there's a uh, I think it's a grapefruit or an orange uh, that he like collected from the Rolling Stones trash can in here. I'm looking now at yeah. an isomizer, which I believe was a device that was probably I don't think actually worked, but in the 1970s it was like a you were supposed to boil. Uh, hashish, I believe, to make it more potent. It's yeah. like the kind of thing that was probably sold mail order out of the back of a High Times. Yeah, exactly. I, th- I think he took in at one point. He did. T- he did take in a kind of a a head shop had gone under, and he kind of took in all their stock and, <laughs> and also all, all their and also all their catalogs, which I think was quite interesting. You know, the stuff that they didn't. You know, that they were being sold, but weren't. You know, that they could have bought almost. So yeah, yeah, he had a totally high and low um, concept, and that is drug culture as well isn't it it's it's uh, it's uh, operates at all levels yeah i'm curious like you know when you took in this whole thing and you started thinking about putting together the book i'm assuming that the book only includes uh a small fraction of what was in the library what what was kind of the the net sum of like taking in all this psych all the psychedelic stuff from objects to books or everything like uh, what did you learn in, in in going through the library what did i learn uh, I learned an awful lot. I mean, you know, on a very practical level, I learned a lot about drugs that I didn't know, that I didn't have a clue about, about their history. Um, I learned about collecting, actually, is something I learned, you know, the, the, the yeah. kind of mindset of the collector, which is something that it really fascinates me. And I'm not a collector by instinct. I say, although I probably, you know, other people might look at my bookshelves and say, I've got a lot of books on certain subjects. But, you know, I don't consider myself a collector, but I think... Like a lot of people, I'm quite close to being a collector. And it's that kind of, you know, at what point do you cross the line? And, and that's something that really interested me, actually, just, you know, about him and being and, and, and having that mentality. Um, but I learned an awful lot about drugs and about, you know, about really fascinating people. Like, I don't know, Antonin Arto and all kinds of writers and, and people who I'd never really would, would never have heard of probably otherwise. Was there stuff that you found in his collection where you looked at it and went, wait, how does this fit into the collection? What does this have to do with the topic? <laughs> yeah, I mean, loads of times, loads of times. You'd look at it and you'd try and work out what it was doing there. But, you know, I'd ask, I'd ask friends, I'd ask Carl, I'd ask other book dealers. And, you know, you'd, you'd do a bit of research and you'd see, well, hang on, yeah, this does make sense. And, you know, and as I say, there, there, there always seemed to be a way of, of, making, of making it fit. Um, yeah, there were, there were lots of moments like that. Was, um, Julio Santo Domingo involved in the culture culture and involved in drug culture himself? Not to my knowledge. Uh, he was a businessman. Um, you know, I, he, he's, he grew up in, he was born in South America. He grew up in, um, in France. Um, he was educated in New York and I think it was in New York that he really became, um, exposed to, uh, kind of late, late seventies, New York street life um and i think a lot of his interest in the subject probably came from that um but otherwise he was just a you know he, he was a he was a hedge fund manager one of the first hedge funders he set up in um in in switzerland so he had a fairly uh straight business life um but he was fascinated in in this subject did the people uh who worked at the the hedge fund he ran know that he had a a giant library of drug paraphernalia at home. <laughs> I think they did. I, I interviewed. Um, I interviewed a few of them. 
Um, there's one of them is a guy called Nicholas Bedruin, who's become a very wealthy businessman and is now sort of opening a collection um, of think of contemporary art in, in Los Angeles. And he said he was inspired by Julio's passion for something. And, you know, this idea that there was more to life than simply making lots and lots and lots of money. So, so yeah, um, he did tell people, some people just didn't get it. I interviewed a couple of people who operated in the same high finance world. And some of them collected things like, you know, Agatha Christie or like Charles Dickens, you know, quite straight subjects. And as you say, things that are quite easy to collect, like, you know, you can get all the first editions and you just get nice versions of them and put them on the shelf and they look great. Um, none of them, had, you know, came anywhere close to what Julio was doing. But And some approved and some just didn't get it. They just didn't understand. They just thought it was a load of tat in a warehouse and he was just wasting time and money. There's always a fine line um, with really uh, obsessive collectors um, between the the collector and what they're collecting. I remember uh, I read this um, sort of semi non-fictional novel uh, called HHHH. It came out a few years ago. I don't know mm. if you're familiar with it, but basically yeah, he's investigating one. this Nazi and he's trying to buy the Nazi's wife's um memoir on ebay and he says like oh god like it sucks i have to keep dealing with all these like um you know neo-nazi guys because they're the only people who are like have this stuff and his wife says to him like how do you know that they're neo-nazis they probably think you're a neo-nazi the guy who's trying to buy (laughs) buy this stuff so like i'm looking right now at like a, a a homemade drug kit uh it's some pretty mm. it's some pretty intense stuff. Uh this is a homemade drug mm. kit from the nineteen seventies. I believe it's a cocaine kit. Um was mm. there any sort of a blurred line in, in the way that he kept trying to acquire this stuff? I mean, some of this stuff is borderline actually drugs. Yeah. I mean, um uh, yeah, I heard I heard I heard about some things he collected. You know, he he would sort of collect samples from different drugs from different right. eras. <laughs> um, I don't, uh, you know, and that's part of it, I think. Yeah. I um, mean, you know, th- th- it was weird. You'd look and there were syringes, you know, and that's a kind of you know, something, if, if you're not a, a drug user, especially of, of, of hard drugs, looking at syringes is always quite difficult. And, you know, yeah. but it, it, it's part of it. It's part of the world. The, the, the drug that you're talking about is a really kind of, um, you know, sort of street, it's made out of a baseball mitten, I think. Yeah, and it's yeah, a real yeah. utilitarian bit of kit. It's a sort of battered bit of leather. And, um, you know, that's, that's someone's life, you know, and probably their death um, is wrapped up in that. And, you know, who knows what, it's, some of those things I found quite, um, I don't know, challenging, but, you know, actually, you know, really fascinating. For me, one of the most interesting items was a, um, there was two books of uh, photos from Vietnam, it's called Memories of South Vietnam. These photo albums, and they look like any touristy photo uh, photo albums if you'd been been away. But um, it was filled with photographs of U.S. Marines uh, in Vietnam, obviously from about 1970, 1971. And they were, you know, they were, they were, they, they were. It was their downtime. It was, so they were smoking, they were like drinking, they were listening to music, they were flashing peace signs, they were kind of taking the piss out of the military. It was all that stuff that. You saw in Platoon and Apocalypse Now and, you know, that idea of uh, soldiers getting getting very high in Vietnam is the only way they could cope. Um, but it was real. You know, these are real people. And I look to those people and, you know, I look at them now and I just think, what happened to them? You know, some of them would have died out there. Some of them would, would have come back. Maybe some of them came back and became drug addicts. Some might still be alive. Um, that, that, that's the stuff that really got that really got me. 
you said that he collected samples of uh, the drugs, like historical samples. Yeah, I can't go. I, I probably have said too much about that already. Well, it's something I'm always con- um, curious about because you have this emerging science uh, in the marijuana industry where we're like understanding more and more about what the actual individual particles are and, and, and what supplies the smell and the flavor, and you're really able to chemically break things down. But we have almost no mm. insight into what, like, marijuana, like in the sort of classic uh, 1970s psychedelic period, we don't really even know what marijuana was then. It's been so interbred mm. since then. Was that, was that something that he was um, curious about? I don't know enough about that, but right. I'd imagine he would have been. I mean, if there was a way of getting, you know, these kind of like, you know, could you get a sort of a 67, you know, uh, LSD sample and compare it to a 1993 one or, you know, as, a, you know, drugs from the 20s. And, and yeah, definitely. I think that would have been, I mean, that that's that's a really fascinating concept, isn't it? Yeah. Um, he, didn't, he didn't have that because I don't think it exists. What he did have was huge amounts of um, material that was made from hemp or, or had marijuana as a uh, or cannabis as a, as a as an ingredient um, he had lots of, you know, he'd, he'd tracked down this cocaine wine from the um, sort of 19th century we found like these sort of few surviving bottles of this van mariani which is a cocaine wine um and at his launch party for the for the lsd library which is what it was called um people drank this and um, people had a drink, apparently it tasted disgusting. Um, and um, and uh, uh, Sasha Shulgin, the, um, the guy who, who synthesized um, ecstasy was there and he was gonna take it away and do an analysis of it to see how much cocaine was actually in this, in this wine. But as far as I'm aware, that didn't actually happen. So the, the library during um, Santo Domingo's lifetime was open to the public or he did have like an opening party. It was um, intended to be presented to the public. He had an opening party, but it was purely for friends. Okay. Um, um, yeah, purely for friends and, and invited invited sort of specialists in the field. Um, the library was never open to the public at any point, no. And what was his relationship like with these like um, counterculture psychedelic figures like the Shulgins? Um, I know, like I'm seeing, there's a photograph. It looks like him with um, Keith Richards here. Like it doesn't. Mm. It, it seems like he was both. Uh, like collecting and slightly crossing paths with this whole world. Yeah, I mean, he did operate. Uh, I think he was one of the few interesting people in Geneva. So when rock stars were in, uh, you know, were, were, were sort of in tax exile, that they ended up meeting him. Um, he also was the godson of Amma um, Ertegun, the founder of Atlantic Records. And that gave him um, uh, that, that gave him sort of um, uh, an invitation to, to various high-level rock stars. Um, and he just moved in high finance circles. So he met a lot of people through that. So through that combination of things, he met lots of rock stars and sort of writers and people like that. But yeah, he was also, you know, he did have a correspondence with Albert Hoffman. You know, he went and visited um, Shulgin in his laboratory and he took back some, some of Shulgin's um, laboratory equipment um so he he kind of yeah he you know he made friends with with the counterculture of in various ways well, looking back on um 
you know, particularly the older, but also the 1970s period of, of publishing. What did you learn about the people who do things like write books about drugs and, and publish these books? Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting history of uh, media as well. Which sort of books are we talking about here? Oh, I'm I'm talking about you know like the um, the opium eater. I'm looking at just uh just sort of like this whole history of of publishing about taboo subjects, opium, the diary of an addict, the greater year mm. of anti-opium. Um, there seems to be this whole sort of alternate uh, publishing history of uh, publishing on this topic. I, I'm I guess I'm curious about this myself. I'm um I'm from Berkeley, California. And one of mm. um, the very first jobs I was ever hired to do uh, was a woman whose husband had run a um, famous counterculture press in Berkeley in the 1970s. And she mm. had like an entire garage full of like he would publish. He published Cocaine, the book, which was just a, mm -hmm. a book of large format uh, like microscope photography of cocaine molecules. Anyway, she had like a whole garage <laughs> of these books and was trying to sell them on eBay uh, to pay her rent. And she wanted me to show her how to uh, how to to list um, the inventory of this press. So I'm I'm wondering mm. like what you know as you looked through all this stuff. What what did you learn about the the people who who produced these these things that um, Domingo collected? Yeah, I mean, I guess you've got the sort of collections on, you've got the writers in different levels. So you've got the kind of accepted ones like, I don't know, Kerouac and uh, sure. Cocteau and, you know, and all those people. Timothy Leary. And then you've got these things like that. that yeah, yeah. And then well, he's kind of on the sort of edge, isn't he, of, of the two, yeah. um, of, you know, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And then you've got, you know, this, there's a book called um, Attention Freebasers, you know, Cocaine is Great or Love Cocaine. And it's a uh, it's a book about you know how to um, how to how to make free base free base cocaine, um, and it's just an extraordinary thing that someone would produce this, and it, and then someone else would buy it. Um, you know, they, you would buy this in a book form. Um, there are lots of books like that. Like uh, you know, there's one called the Psychedelic Eucharist, which is about. Uh, about how to again synthesize various drugs, and it says you know that you should only make these drugs if you're going to use them for for uh, spiritual religious purposes. Um, I, I kind of had no idea of of this of, of this world um, where where people were making these books, and also in the world of erotica, which is another uh, area that he he collected. Um, you know that there were there were some amazing items of kind of almost diaries, really. Of um, by, by you know, quite famous poets and writers who basically you know their own erotic diaries. They'd published one or two versions of it, and um, they're like these secret books that you know no one knows exist apart from the person who who wrote them and then the, the various people who are lucky enough to own them. Are you uh, uh, personally interested in uh, like marijuana or drug culture at all? Or are you are you uh, uh, feel free to not answer this if you're not uh, comfortable? But I'm uh, curious what you your always personal... ask this question. Don't I, you? Do, I do. Um, yeah, no, I, I'm, I don't smoke now. I, I did um, in my teens and in my into my sort of mid twenties, um, uh -huh. but uh, I haven't for for quite a number of years now. I mean, that's one of the interesting things I think is that. I don't have a very strong relationship with drugs in that I've never really got as much out of them as I felt that I was being, uh, as was being advertised. And reading this book made me wonder what, what, I, what I've been doing wrong. Make <laughs> writing this book, sorry, made me wonder what, what I've been doing wrong. 
was uh, Julio Santo Domingo also interested in drug experiences of his own? I couldn't comment. Okay. I and... wouldn't know. I, I, I never met the man. Oh, right um, so I don't know. What, um, what's the future of this collection? Um, will it be displayed? Will it be preserved, kept together? Yeah, so after Julio died, um, the family kind of had this huge warehouse full of stuff, and they didn't really know what to do with it. Um, they sort of kept it together and sort of not kept it together. So the bulk of the, the, the sort of flat items, which is kind of books, newspapers, posters, flyers, um, that's all gone to Harvard um, on a long-term loan. And Harvard is doing the, the, the kind of hard work of cataloging it, which had never been done before. And they've also had an exhibition. I don't know if it's still ongoing, but they had an exhibition of some of the sort of choice items from it. And a lot of the rock and roll items went to the Cleveland Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, and then other bits and bobs have kind of gone to different dealers here and there. if They didn't quite fit into those two main categories. Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, there's not like an obvious, it's not like... Um... You know, there's an obvious museum that this pairs up with or anything. It speaks to the eclectic nature of the collection that uh, there isn't an uh, obvious place to display it. No, it doesn't. And the only way, you know, it could have done it, is, you know, if it became a museum in its own right, you know, it couldn't really be. Because a lot of other collections and libraries would already have much of this material. But as you say, it, it covers so many different areas. It could only really become a museum if it was opened as one. Um, and that requires, you know, a lot of a lot of time and money. Yeah, I could see it desires. being like a, and, and you know, you got to want to do it. Could see it being like a tourist attraction in Amsterdam, maybe. But uh, yeah, and and that's something that he kind of specifically said he didn't want to be to, to, to be creating. You know, he didn't want to make that. It's also ironic that part of it went to uh, Harvard because didn't Harvard fire Timothy Leary at some point? Yeah. Yeah, I think that that was, um, yeah, I think that was quite a delicious uh, <laughs> irony. I mean, I think that, that Harvard welcomed it back, you know, finally, you know, we've got this, all this leery stuff that, that, we, that we threw away. Um, and, that, you know, and that, again, is a, one of the interesting subjects of, one of the interesting sort of narratives of, of drug culture, really, about that kind of, you know, the, the, the way something becomes, uh, you know, despised. And then suddenly, later on, people say, well, hang on a sec, you know, what, 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 what have we missed here? You know, you're seeing it with, with marijuana, you're seeing it with LSD as well. Um, people are wondering maybe that in their kind of haste to criminalize something, they might have uh, they might have missed something bigger. Yeah, I've, I um, when I started to prepare doing this show, I did a, a cursory uh, eBay um, trawl, and I was surprised. I, I was actually looking mostly to buy just vintage high times. But once I started mm. searching, I was like, oh, High Times is just like the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's this whole publishing history. Uh, I think I found a Head magazine. I don't know if you saw that in the collection, which mm. I believe was a yeah. magazine for drug dealers. Uh, mm. I mean, just like the amount of, just in America, the amount of magazines that were supported uh, on this topic in about 1972, you could have filled the whole mm. shelf with. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating, and the adverts in those highlights. Oh, uh, fantastic! Incredible as well. The yeah. things that you could advertise. I mean, amazing. It, yeah, it kind of blew my mind just what a um, what a rich business culture. How much stuff people were making. I think we generally think of like drugs as this ephemeral thing that sort of created and then burnt away forever. But what a mm. what a huge industry was trailing behind it, uh, trying to sell it mm. weird novelty crap. 
and and that's one thing that um, I, th- I think Carl Williams um, always pointed out, which is that you know people talk about the, the hippies as you know and, and drug users as being kind of you know lazy and useless, and yet they are incredibly industrious, <laughs> and you know yeah. will create all kinds of stuff, you know all kinds of stuff, uh, you know whether it's whether it is you know a coke spoon or a you know or or a nice summarizer or or magazines and newspapers, you know, it's a massive industry. These are really busy, industrious people. So uh, before you go, I had one last question, which is um, for people listening. Uh, well, first of all, check out the book. Where, where can people find the book? Uh, where can you buy the book? You can, you can probably buy it online, I think, is the best place. Yeah, it's, so it's being published by Anthology, being yeah. published by Anthology Editions. So that's probably the best place to get it. And my question was going to be, I know most of this stuff that's in the book is out of print or never was in print, but did you come across anything, any books uh, in his collection that are still available that you would uh, that you would actually recommend someone check out that weren't just uh, novelty books were actually a uh, pretty interesting document? Oh, my God, I don't know where to begin. Um, yeah, so much. I mean, a lot of it is about the kind of... Um it's about the subject in general so you know if you're interested in um in lsd there's a storming heaven which is about uh lsd in america fascinating book by jay stevens there's a similar book by andy roberts called albion dreaming about lsd in in um in, in england um martin booth who wrote a couple of really good overviews of cannabis and opium uh there's a great book called shroom by andy let I mean, these are the kind of books I had to read, really, to get. Did you read? Did you read everything in the library? Did you like? uh, Did you? Did you? (laughs) I mean, it seems impossible. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say that's a lifetime. How did? How much of it did you read? So I, I, I took about uh, thirty or forty books from the library. uh, Had had it shipped over to me, which were, you know, which gave me an overview. So you know, I couldn't maybe read. You know, so I was writing about William Burroughs. I couldn't read everything God Burroughs had written, but I could read a, you know, a, a really good biography and then dip in and out of, of the, of the fiction and nonfiction as, as necessary. So I kind of approached it that way. You know, I needed the overview and then for specifics, I could then sort of burrow down as and when I needed. Um, so for overview that, that sort of Martin Booth book is really good on, on cannabis. It's a really interesting uh, book on cannabis. There's also a book I found called the, the road of excess, um, by Martin Boone, which is um, which is about writers um, and drugs and how different writers have used drugs um, and written about drugs, which is the kind of you know one one of the kind of core themes of the collection. Sure. You know how the how how artists of any kind um, interpret and understand the the the, the drug experience and, and you know is it possible to capture that drug experience? Is, is it real? Those are the things the collection is is really trying to trying to ask. Well, uh, thank you so much, Peter. That's a pleasure. This episode was edited by Justine Dom. I'm Aaron Lammer, your host. You can send me emails, hi at stoner.co. All of our branding is done by Mickey Duje, and uh, the theme song is a cover of Ted Lucas by my good friend, Francis Starlight, who I hope will return to the program uh, this season. More on that soon. See you next week.